Hello and welcome to At The Source. I'm Alex and this is Karis. This is a podcast about food stories. We love talking about food and eating it. So we wanted to talk to fellow food lovers and record their stories. We're having conversations with everyone from home cooks to food producers and restaurateurs. So why not join us as we explore food in all its glory? Welcome to At The Source. Today's guest is Ray Scott, a food technologist, blogger and chocolate connoisseur. Karis met Ray when she went on a sweet tooth edition of the Bristol Food Tour. They got to talking about food and Rachel's background and ever since Karis has had a ton of questions to ask. Thankfully, Ray was happy to join us so we can share her story. Welcome Ray. Hi. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Excited, thank you. So the first question and we, we've decided this is going to be our question that we ask everybody just so we've got like something to start with. What's your first memory of food? Uh, that's a really good one our first sort of family holiday when I was about five was to France it was the oyster region apparently I'd go running on the playground with my brother and then as my parents were having oysters uh, I would come running back like a little baby bird and sort of have one and uh (laughs) That's quite a fancy first memory. And do Even, you still like oysters now? No, had a bad experience recently. So, oh, uh, <laughs> oh there's it, always one. Yeah. yeah, so you kind of think, oh, I think as you grow up, you kind of start sort of being a little bit less fearless with the food. <laughs> well, yeah. there's something about food poisoning putting you out of out of play for a few days that really makes you <laughs> think twice about eating that thing in the back of the fridge. It was just a texture thing with it had a bit of shell in and it was just not, Ooh. it was biting back, it was not... But, um, wow, oysters, yeah. what a first food <laughs> Amazing. And when we were talking before we started recording, you mentioned that food has always been something that's really important in your family. And you went and did a food technology degree at Cardiff Uni. What was it that about that family experience that sort of sent you down that road? Yeah, so my uh, both my grandmothers were fantastic home bakes, uh, bakers. They did um, christening cakes and all sorts of celebrations and a Sunday lunch spread that could rival any uh, accomplished chef. So that's kind of trickled down to my mum, who always had me and my brother in the kitchen, sort of allowing us to kind of make a mess and kind of be inventive and try out things and yeah always trying out new recipes actually made my neighbor's wedding cake when I was 13. 13? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Excuse okay. me. Wait a minute girl feel really unaccomplished in their life. It's a shame that um, Bake Off wasn't around there. I don't know oh well yeah doing wedding cakes is definitely takes kind of nerves of still done one recently and sort of uh all the sort of catastrophe memories go through of like dropping cakes and things like that oh. you just don't want. Oh, shudder, <laughs> shudder just went up my spine. Uh, one of my best friends got married a couple of years ago and um, I was her bridesmaid and I was uh, her, she made her own wedding cake. So um, it was really, really pretty. It was a kind of all multicoloured um, sprinkles on the bottom tier and on the top tier was like a, a shimmery light pink that she'd kind of smoothed all around it I'm not very good at baking um I went into the kitchen I was staying at their house like two days before or one day before the wedding I went into the kitchen and the cat was licking the side of the cake I went into the lounge and um my friends were there I'm not going to say her name because we agreed that we would never tell any of the guests what had happened never speak of Um, the cat I said guys um got a problem here and I told them and they burst out laughing and they were like that is so funny to say that and I was like um, no, it's really happening, and she'd licked all the icing off one side of the cake. So rather than oh losing goodness. her cool, the coolest bride I've ever known, she just said, "Right, like day before her wedding, 
okay, uh, we'll we'll just kind of build it up again with a bit of icing and we just smoothed it out and then <laughs> we put a big flower over it and none of the guests ever found out that I always wonder who ate the bit that got licked by the cat. <laughs> I mean, it's very likely it could have been you, so... <laughs> well, yeah, it could have <laughs> that. Anyway, sorry to interrupt, it's just a funny story. No. Um, yeah, and I had a sort of... Uh, with that I had a good relationship with my mum doing sort of being her sous chef for uh, dinner parties as well so um, work as very well as a little team so it kind of fed into sort of wanting to become a patisserie chef um, so when I was 16 did work experience uh, in a local restaurant which was interesting tell us more <laughs> Uh, it was only me and the head chef for the week, so rather intense. Um, and I was doing two shifts a day as well, including prep. Oh, at 16? Yeah. Didn't show the tips. That was that was hurt even more. Um, oh, wow. When one of the shifts went into the freezer, plate up a dessert, and uh, staring back at me was a bag of uh, frozen baby mice for the head chef's uh, pet snake. Well, I guess it's, it's okay because it wasn't going into the human food. I mean, it was still a shock. <laughs> I wonder what I'm trying, to find, I'm trying to find the silver lining. Mm, I mean, I'm sure they're lovely sautéed, but it was oh. just no. Um, uh, after that week, sort of uh, had a little look at uh, potentially chefing wasn't for me. I basically discovered a food uh, product development uh, course, a module at Cardiff. So can you tell us a little bit about that degree? Yeah, sure. So it was a three-year course and with a mixture of lectures and practicals. So we did uh, microbiology as well as a part of it. So including sort of being very scientific with Petri dishes and checking if grapes had salmonella. Um, <laughs> the glamour. Which can, are, can grapes have salmonella? Not really. Right, no. okay. Just checking. Uh, <laughs> unless someone's handled it, you're fine with chicken. It's all good. Um, <laughs> rubbed your chicken over the grapes before you eat it's them. It's very... <laughs> you're good and then so we did uh, different modules on raw materials so it could be we might have an hour lecture on rice production or also then processing techniques so in our third year we had to learn about a three-page equation to work out how long a pipe would be in a factory to pasteurize orange juice wow. to make sure it's safe don't ask me to uh, <laughs> recount it as soon as that exam was over it's out of my head uh, that's what google's for <laughs> And then we also, like, what brought me to uni uh, was the new product development um, module. So we worked with companies and they gave us live briefs. So to come up with our own products, do market research, and then in kitchens, actually make them up and present them back. Mm. It was, because then it made you think commercially, Mm. not just, I like apple pie, so I will make one. It was Mm. kind of searching out. So I actually did it for Rachel's Organics. Oh, fantastic. So first year did different yogurt-based dips for them. So did any of your products come into fruition? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> That's a shame. It is. The next year working again with them was making yogurt-based desserts and then doing sorts. So I did like frozen yogurts and oh. different charlottes and all sorts of little uh, <laughs> things. So, yeah, it was great. The university has good ties with industry, so mm-hmm. to get sort of different people in. And we all had different um, briefs, so you had quite an eclectic mix. That's nice. So you weren't all kind of working on the same thing. Yeah, and then when I've gone into industry, I've actually given briefs back to the university and oh, gone in fantastic. to hear it. So it's quite nice to see sort of the circle of life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. And so. so now that you obviously 
you finished your degree and you did then become a food technologist. Yes. And I think this is why Karis and I had you on our hit list for this podcast, because we absolutely just find what you do fascinating. So we know you've worked with pies and baked goods, and now you work on kind of ready-to-eat food-on-the-go product. Can you kind of tell us a bit about what being a product developer in the food industry actually looks like? So what would a usual week be? What would you be doing? Well, there's never really a usual week, which is kind of why I, I, I love it so much, is that you're kind of going to work on a day and think, okay, I've got this, this and this on my to-do list, and then something comes up, and then it completely changed the path. How we basically get a product to shelf is we either working for a customer or um, working for a brand that the customer will say, oh, we want to do healthy living. Our job with development chefs is to pull all these ideas together and then basically mock them up in a development kitchen and sort of narrow it down on what could be feasible, either cost or mm-hmm. health or practicality. And then my main job is to take those ideas into a factory and make sure they work. With the bakery um, work, that was a lot more problem solving because you would have yeasted doughs that didn't want to rise or you would have lemon tarts that wouldn't set and you would have to problem solve with food really and basically take it step by step, break it down the recipe and make sure that at the end of it you have a product that can be made quickly in a factory because you don't want anything taking like six hours to make just one product Mm. and then uh, you also want the product to look as good as a chef has made it which is sometimes harder than you think Uh, a little sprinkle takes a lot of thought and uh, (laughs) a little drizzle on top of a, a donut is equally the conversations we have to have of um which are very very serious obviously is of how thick a pipe of icing should be and should it be at a 45 degree angle or or, which is ridiculous because you're looking at it from not just what looks good but actually a lot of these things will come back to the cost and and how much money you're going to make per item certain items that you would make at home you would probably keep maybe two three days and normally eat most of it in that time Maybe less if you're greedy like me. Um, <laughs> but on a commercial level, the customer that you're making it for, if the product is on the shelf longer, it gives uh, more of a chance to be seen and bought. By having a product that is like a one-day, two-day shelf life, you're likely to have a lot of wastage because mm. you've got a very short window to actually sell them. A lot of my job um, for the bakery was having these home-baked items, whereas hopefully without lots of nasties and preservatives, which a lot of customers are now not wanting to see in their food, Mm. making sure these products last for like maybe 14 days. Mm. which because of course I guess it's the whole cycle from the point that it leaves the factory Mm -hmm. to then go to the supermarket to then go to someone's cupboard or fridge that's a really interesting point about not wanting to pump them full of nasties so we would normally call that as a like um either a clean deck so clean ingredient declaration or kitchen cupboard a customer could pick up and back a pack read it and understand what everything was there which yeah has its challenges because there are some great additions that would solve problems very quickly but customers quite rightly don't want it so we have to get inventive and it might be brushing a pastry case um, for a lemon tart with uh, white chocolate 
So you've got a barrier between the pastry and filling so it doesn't soften over life. And extra white chocolate. And extra white chocolate, which can't be a bad thing. So no soggy bottom and extra chocolate. Mm, when I'm, we're I'm not seeing any problems. <laughs> so you have to kind of think around those kind of things of like, okay, I've got all this edible toolkit. What can I kind of... And it might be just simple things like temperature control and just tweaking things. Sugar is great, but sometimes it also causes issues it's an interesting job because things that you think are very simple like now we're working sandwiches you think ah making a sandwich what problems are going to be like yeah no there are some as well fresh tomato there is one thing i desperately hate in a sandwich is tomato because it just sits there in a ready-made yeah it's disgusting fresh made sandwich totally fine raised face so (laughs) i'm the same they are a nightmare (laughs) I, they have a nice, you know, a place in the world. A nice tomato salad, fantastic. <laughs> in a sandwich that you're not eating on the day, no, get it out, no. I'm glad we all agree on that. So what, what does a sandwich, and I don't know if I actually want to know this because I've eaten more than my fair share of sandwiches from uh, supermarkets, but what's the shelf life on one of those? Like how long does it take before it actually gets on the shelf? A lot of them are actually made during the night. Um, so that they are shipped and in store. So, like, you don't have, like, lose a day of transit ah. um, of it. It's okay. So, um, <laughs> so you probably, a fresh one, you, you probably wouldn't push it past three days. But you'd be surprised on some where you're like, mm, shall we, this one, day six, let's give that a go. And, yeah, because uh, another part of our job is, obviously, we do organoleptics, uh, which is just a fancy word for basically trying the food oh, I would like yes. to, I would like to do that <laughs> I am that listening <laughs> so I mean there's some things where you're like I don't want to taste it for 14 days but we will as well as doing sending samples to the lab to test that they are generally safe mm-hmm. for a customer so that's obviously first and foremost is that we will send samples and we will try them in house and so we're just looking at okay if we were buying it would we be happy to eat this product as it is today because obviously and the consumer it's important are they going to buy it again based on this experience mm-hmm. if it's soggy and a bit bland or you know a bit cracked and it's not um like a, a nice sort of caramel tart that you're going to bring out in front of family are you going to be disappointed if you do that you know we're just trying to make the best product we can in the manufacturing setting really so mm. do you ever find that there's a, any crossover between what you guys are doing and marketing the reason i ask is because a, a few months ago my boyfriend's mum bought some chocolate eclairs from a frozen food shop and on the picture they they looked all right they looked pretty mm. good and we took them out of the packet and they were like these tiny shriveled little things that bore absolutely no resemblance to the photography on the box that's very disappointing of the products that I've worked on we we do work with marketing for two reasons so we'll go along to the photo shoot mm-hmm. as well when those are being taken so hopefully obviously you want to show products in the best light and sometimes that goes a little bit awry in the mm. factory they're having a bad day but hopefully it is they tend to try to be as like for like as possible it may have been a one-off situation <laughs> from a legality um point of view also part of my job is checking artwork so making sure that all of the allergens are present and then also nice descriptions where marketers like to 
get a little bit overexcited um, with some of the terms, which is all well and good. Although sometimes we have to just rein them back in a little bit and just be like, can't necessarily say that it's been handpicked by, you know, <laughs> elderly attendant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You will definitely get people who ask for proof for that and sort of saying things like, you know, we tuck our, our pigs in at night, even though it's a nice <laughs> little imagery someone will go show us and you can't necessarily say things like that so there's a part of the job that is quite dry and having to be very legal and um, sensible in that way but then hopefully being fun and creative with the products it kind of outweighs it. One of the things actually I wanted to ask you was about sensory evaluation so what is that? Um, It's similar to the organoleptics that you would check so you would some bigger businesses have a whole suite where they test it. So ice cream companies definitely have it, where they can actually change colours of the actual lighting where you're seeing the food. So that if something's slightly pink, that you're not perceiving it necessarily as like berries, it kind of neutralises it out. So you're tasting it on preference rather than potentially if the colour you know, some colours are a little bit more challenging. So maybe like a green, like sorbet or blue. It, or blue, yeah, exactly. Isn't quite, so they're neutralised out. So if you're, if they're testing for specific things like sugar levels or sourness, they can kind of try and level the playing field on it. So you can do various tests, so like a triangle test. So two samples will be the same, one will be different you kind of still do preference of that. They're all a little bit tricky trying to get you to basically focus in of what what preference you have. So it's normally sort of aroma, appearance, texture. Texture is a massive thing Mm. for people. Just basically quantifying people going, I like this, this is nice. At uni, uni we actually did it for um, end-of-term products as well and we had quite a nice array of students coming in and of taking bits and pieces whereas when I was inventing pies we had it more of as a pie and beer night uh, (laughs) where we had um, customers come in and uh, (laughs) basically be sort of if there was something we were testing and trying to just see what actual buying customers would want and we would do a simple A and B test Hmm. kind of thing it can take different levels and it's widely used obviously Doing it in like beer and wine um, sensory testing is a lot more fun. Yeah, it's when it's sort of uh, like garlic puree, the fun kind of dwindles down a bit. But <laughs> I, I really like garlic, so... Monday morning job, though? <laughs> I don't know, I'd have to make out with anyone after Because <laughs> even makes then, meetings I'm not fun. <laughs> Exactly. As long as you all had it, it's absolutely fine. Safe space, yeah. (laughs) So just to backtrack slightly, you did product development on pies. Tell us what your job title was. Uh, It was Pie Inventor. So good. Which at parties, people definitely think is a made-up job. And yeah, so I did that for four years. Made ones for the royal wedding. Um, Wow. Wow. I had one called the Titanic, which was a fish pie. Uh, which uh, had to do uh, factory trials <laughs> and every time we tried something would just go wrong. The one day that it managed to go down the line nicely, it turned out it was the day in history that the 
Titanic actually sank. I was like, wow. omen. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's so fine. Um, I love that. Did sort of sausage rolls and sweet pies and uh, oh, all sorts of fun. Did what's raised my new friend? She doesn't still have access to the pies, though. Oh. I've got connections. Oh. <laughs> Tell, is there, of all the products you've developed over the years or been part of, you know, this is probably a really hard question, like, you know, what's your all-time favourite song? But is there any one particular product that you really enjoyed making or it was a total nightmare but it just resulted in something amazing? I think even the nightmare ones become your kind of favourites because you've had to battle so hard to actually get them on the shelves. So there were some where 13 product trials down the line, normally we'd only do three, um, and that's sometimes excessive for depending on the product. But 13 early mornings which when I'm not a morning person it's adds another layer of pain to the process and this is a baked good it was yeah uh, it was a gin and tonic tart for a round supermarket it just wouldn't play ball like it would in the kitchen fine we could make it like a dream but all of the elements of this is when we had to get really science with different starches and pH levels and all sorts of um, fun like that. And then, yeah, to see it on the shelf and having some media coverage is quite, yeah, it's kind of a nice moment. But even the other ones where you've been just looking at artwork for like a week, it's just really nice to kind of see on the shelf and also be a bit sneaky in the supermarket and see if people are picking it up and being like, oh, that looks good. And you're like... Yep, worked on that. That's yeah, and that's kind of why I got into food is kind of seeing people's enjoyment with it, really. So it sounds really that being passionate about food is key to to the job that you do. Yeah, I think we're kind of one of the first gatekeepers of it, especially in a factory where they work really, really hard for like twelve hours a day. It might just be putting cherries on bakewells, but they work really hard and. If you can go in and be enthusiastic and be like, we're going to do this new product and explain to them why they should really care about, you know, doing it. You're kind of hopefully setting them up to be enthusiastic about the products and it to carry on through the making it. So ending up with a really good product. Mm. And I think you can't not like food and to work in food, really. It's um, it gets to you. <laughs> I absolutely love the sound of what you do. It's so interesting. I'm literally sat here like with my mouth open, gawping at Ray. I think we're we're probably almost out of time, but one of the things that we just really wanted to talk to you about before we finish is your love of chocolate. That is true. I do have quite the passion. So if you go on to Ray's blog and your Instagram. And your Instagram and your we blog will name. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Food Nerd, we'll put the links in as Kara said. There is so much chocolate. There are some amazing chocolate reviews on there as well. A question, how or where did your love of artisan chocolate begin? So I've always loved chocolate. It could just a bar of Galaxy or ice cream, like always, always, always a fiend for it. And so is my mum. Sort of like sending our dad for a toffee crisp down the newsagents on a Friday. About 2014, a company called Cocoa Runners, and they're still going today, started releasing like a mail subscription of monthly parcels of artisan chocolate. And I thought, yeah, 
Let's go for it. The first bar I had was from Vietnam. Whereas beforehand, it was just chocolate flavor. First taste of this little bar had cherries and red currants and all sorts of flavors I didn't think that chocolate could actually have. And it kind of just, well, we'd say spiral from there really, <laughs> um, to a bit of an obsession. And chocolate actually has like 300 flavor compounds more than wine. See, now this is the thing, right? So we're asking a person who is, who is actually, <laughs> she understands how the food is actually made. And so when she's tasting it, she's going, I can spot that and that and that. Does that make food more enjoyable for you or less enjoyable? I'm not going to be pretentious, like certain food, like trashy food, awesome. Same with like, you know, good chicken wing. Great. But like, um, I do think sort of tasting chocolate and actually wine, I can sound a bit big headed. I can detect a little bit more flavors, Mm -hmm. but I think with the right tools and just trying say like a bar, anyone can actually discover that they can start tasting different flavors because these bean to bar chocolates, unlike uh, Cadbury's and Galaxy, where they're getting like mass uh, beans from all around the world. These chocolate makers are pretty much getting from plantation. So like wine, you're getting it from a single vineyard, these cocoa beans. And of course, like different climate and soil conditions are so unique to that region. You can even have one bar um, from one location and drive three hours in the same country and it'll taste completely different. Um, So Vietnam, you get kind of caramelized milk flavor and coffee. Peru, you can get quite grassy notes. Madagascar is really fruity. Papua New Guinea, because it's so um, humid, they have to dry the beans in drying rooms where they light fires, otherwise the beans would just rot. And um, smoky. So yeah, and it, they basically, Papua New Guinea is incredibly smoky and works really well as whiskey pairings. Mm. Oh. Yeah. And it's still Dave about <laughs> Yeah. So it's a fantastic world out there and there's, it's just, some people are going really specific with the beans that you're using and you can find some fantastic bars out there. A final question, Ray. Can you tell us the the ones, the top-notch artisan brands in chocolate that we should be eating right now? Okay, I'll keep it UK representing. So Dormouse Chocolates in Manchester are fantastic, lovely ladies. Their Dominican Republic is incredible. And they also do a toasted white chocolate. Oh my God. And it's like biscuity. It's like, oh, it's so delicious. And they have some special ones at Christmas, like a Stalin bar with like some almond butter in there and cherries. So good. But they're like origin bars are so good. Pump Street Bakery. They started obviously as a bakery and now do some of the best chocolates in the world. Um, So the Jamaican is great. They also do milk chocolate with a rye crumb from their bakery. Mm. That sounds interesting. And a sourdough and sea salt one. Um, Oh my goodness, I need to try that. And an Eccles cake. Obviously being from Bristol, Zara's Chocolates. It's got a new chocolate shop at the moment. And doing some wonderful truffles and um, as well as being to bar. Basically, go out. It doesn't matter if, you know, they will be a little bit more, but it's almost like... There's any more more expensive. Yeah. However, you're paying for the love and attention that these people have 
roasted and ground these beans to making something really special. You're not going to eat, well, you're not going to necessarily eat a whole bar in one sitting as you would with a bar that you might be just buying kind of for a sugar here. Mm. So you're going to have a little nibble and, you know, uh, my desk drawer is full of a lot of sandwich bags with part nibbled ones and every now and then me and my colleagues will be like, oh, do you fancy a bit of Colombian and a bit of Mexican and we're passing around. So you're not eating a whole bar, but just these really flavoursome little bars, really. Amazing. Thank you so much, Ray. This is mm. fascinating and I feel like I could continue asking questions, but that would be very selfish of me (laughs) because you probably need to go home. But thank you so much, and I've learnt a lot. I have. We'll have some show notes and we'll have links and things to your blog and to some of the chocolate producers that you've mentioned. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. If you liked the podcast, we would love if you could subscribe and leave us a rating on iTunes so more people can find us. And until next time, over and out.